When I express my love for history, an honest soul will occasionally remark, I hate history. I hate hearing that. But it doesn't really bother me because I don't believe it's ever true. At least not if you're a follower of Jesus. When a believer says, I hate history, what that person really means is I've never had a good history teacher. But every true believer has read the ultimate history book, the Bible, and has been transformed by it. And the life and eternal destiny of every believer depends upon historical realities. Those realities that generate our new identity in Christ. So we've been looking at sacred history as we've been studying the book of Romans and in the first six chapters the emphasis has been upon the exchange of our identity in Adam and our new identity in Jesus Christ. Historical figures with whom we identify and live out our life in response. This new identity depends then on our spiritual union with the historical death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So we've looked very decidedly at two spots on earth and two moments in history, which loom large in the book of Romans to this point. The first spot is the Garden of Eden, where we sinned in Adam. And the second spot is the hill of Calvary, where we died with Christ. In Romans 6, we have learned that sin's power has been broken in our lives by Jesus' death in our place to pay the penalty of our sins and at the moment that we placed our hope, our faith in His sacrifice. Sin's power has been broken. Sin's presence has not been evaporated, but its power has been broken in our lives. We come now to Romans chapter 7, and there's, a, in a sense, a third spot on earth and a third moment in history that is crucial to our new life as believers in the gospel. But as we come to this third spot, we come to this unique time in history that we need to consider there's a problem. Let me say up front and admit this is a significant problem. Paul in Romans 7, is highly exercised about a matter that is not very concerning to us. And that always is challenging. And the response can very easily be, this is boring. I don't need this. Another response I would commend to you, and that is a response of faith, realizing that there's a salvation history lesson that we need to learn in order to grow in our faith in Christ. Today's emphasis, next week by God's grace as we work through Romans 7, is not going to be as obvious to us as has been chapter 6. To hear the wonder that our sin has been broken by Christ's sacrifice is immediately important to me. Romans 7, not quite as much, but it is necessary for our growth. And to that end, we need to dig into this history, into this account, and recognize its significance. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul points us to this third spot on earth, a time position between the garden and the cross that is more important to our growth as believers than we may recognize. 
But think of it this way, on those two other points, where are we, where would we be if we thought Adam's sin had nothing to do with us? We'd be in bad shape. We'd be where unbelievers are. Secondly, where would we be if we thought Christ's death and His resurrection had nothing to do with us? We'd be lost, desperate. Well, the sin of Adam and the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth are far more important to the identity of the believer. We sinned in Adam, we're now alive in Christ, and that is all-important history. But Paul is also concerned that we understand the relationship, our relationship, with the law that God gave to Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai in the Arabian Desert which we find recorded in the book of Exodus. But going to Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul said almost in passing at 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Are you interested in that? Sin will not rule over you. It will not be your master. We want this liberation from sin. We call for it as God's people. So that's significant to us. But then he says, since you are not under law but under grace... He really doesn't do much to develop that there in 6.14. But there is a direct relationship to the ending of sin's dominion over us and our freedom from the law. So while we may struggle to see the relevance of our relationship to the Mosaic law as Gentile Christians, Romans 6.14 indicates that our battle against sin passes historically through Mount Sinai, where that law was given. There's a historical passage through that point in history, through that relationship with Israel and God that we need to grasp. In fact, Romans 7 records some of the most intense words that Scripture gives to us revealing the battle with sin. So I don't think I'm overstating the case. If you are serious about fighting sin in your life, you need to understand your historical relationship to the law of Moses. It's crucial. And problem number two, many godly Bible-believing Christians differ on what this means. So all we can do until we meet Jesus is plow through and do the best that we can to understand the text, realizing that there are pretty wide differences on the interpretation of this chapter, although the essence of it the big point of it is there and clear to us. So there's great hope for us here. May the Spirit find open ears then as we heed His counsel today and Lord willing next week as we work through Romans 7. The sixth chapter ends there, verse 22, with Paul saying, but now that you have been set free from sin, remember this liberation, we've been set free from sin and we've become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. There is growth in your life because you've been freed from sin. And it will end in eternal life, ultimately in the Lord's presence. 4, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He continues on then in chapter 7 and points out this fact that we have not only died to sin, but we've died to the law. We are alive in the Spirit. 
first of all, verses 1 through 6, united by faith. Here's his thesis. United by faith to Christ, we died to the law and now serve God in the Spirit. United by faith to Christ, in His death, in His resurrection, having come to trust that and to be identified with it, it is true of us that we died to the law and we now serve God in the Spirit. His thesis is found in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Who are the brothers who know the law? Some would argue that this is just a reference to Jewish believers, but I think it's really a reference far larger than that to all believers at Rome. It's almost certain that most of the members of the Roman church were Gentiles and also certain that they would have had a pretty deep knowledge of the Scriptures of the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, if you know the Mosaic Law, Paul contends, then you know it applies only to the living, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird statement. Of course it only applies to the living. But he secures our attention here with this rather odd claim and then illustrates in verses 2 and 3. What does he mean? For a married woman, let's take this example. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Well, yes, the reader would say that's obviously true. Under Mosaic law, death ends the marriage covenant. It ends a widow's obligation to remain married and faithful to her husband. He's dead. But Paul now stretches the illustration a bit further. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So her husband's alive, she leaves him, is involved with another man, she's committing adultery. The law would teach this. But, verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This is an appropriate and legitimate marriage. So we could envision that the law said you will marry once in life and that is all. The law does not say that. It says that if your mate dies, you are free to marry in the Lord. That is appropriate according to the law. What's he getting at? Here's the point, verse 4. He's made his claim. He's illustrated it. Now the application to the Christian. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. It's a return to 6.14. You see that, can you? We're not under the law, but we're under grace. Here he says you have died to the law, and it's through the body of Christ. I don't think that means through the church, the body of Christ, but through the death, the physical death of Jesus, the historical death of Christ. Through that event, you died to the law. You died to sin. We've looked at that in chapter 6. You've also died, we learn here, to the law. He now unpacks that thesis. Believers having died to the law. How is that? Through the body of Christ. Again, through His death. So, when you trust Christ as your Savior from sin, you die in Christ to sin. And sin's power is broken. That's chapter 6. We also need to know that we die to the law that was revealed on Mount Sinai. With this result, verse 4, so that 
you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. To belong to another, of course, means to be transferred from the headship of Adam to the headship of Jesus. With the further result that we would bear fruit to God. That we would live righteously. Paul will work out in the verses to follow that the law was like a a sort of an ecosystem with which God's people battled sin. Inside that ecosystem there was always this battle with sin, but the result of life under that arrangement did not produce spiritual fruit. God's law was an exquisite gift to Israel. God had spoken words of life to His people And there on Mount Sinai, God did with Israel something He had never done before with any people. Give them His law. It was an exquisite gift. But in the history of salvation, Christ's death ended life under the law's ecosystem. And that is good news for God's people. Why is that good news? Well, here's where the debate begins. It's debated as to why this is good news, and it relates to how you understand the phrase died to the law. I would disagree with the tradition that says Paul only thinks here of the misuse of the law. So in this way of thinking, Jesus' death rescues people from misusing the law and sets them free to use it the right way. I would differ with that in the interpretation that will follow here. Paul seems to be thinking far more universally than that, as far as the text reads in my thinking. Nor does Jesus merely rescue us from the law's judgment. He certainly does that, but some would stop there. It's just the judgment of the law that he's talking about. We've died to the judgment that the law brings. Well, that is certainly true. No one argues that. But again, I think he's talking more universally, more globally. There's a bigger thing afoot here. Paul speaks of a massive salvation historical change with Christ's death that can only be described as a death to the law. Not a reworking of it. Not a deliverance from its judgment only, but a death to the law itself. And that becomes clear, I think, in his explanation in verses 5-6. through six. And again, I want to respect those with whom I would differ on this, trans, uh, on this interpretational point. But I think verses 5 through 6 show this larger theme. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were living in the flesh. That is not a reference to the body as evil, but it's to the realm or what one is called the power sphere of fallen life in which we are bound by the dominion of sin as unbelievers. While we were, verse 5, living in the flesh, our sinful passions, our desires, were aroused by the law. And these passions at work within our members bore fruit for death. They were aroused by the law. Let me ask very simply, is it good to obey God? Yes. It's obvious. How do we know what God wants us to do? He gives us His law, His word, His will. Does God's law then, is it right to obey Him? Yes. How does He help us know? He gives us His word. 
Does not then the law restrain sin? And we would want to say, of course it does. God wants us to obey. He gives us his word. His word will help us to avoid sin. Paul really stretches us here. And he says, not the right answer on number three. Actually, when God tells us to do certain things and tells us not to do certain things, the very articulation of his will excites rebellion in our souls. Paul is saying here, and will throughout chapter 7, you are that broken. You are that broken that when God says to do this or not to do this, that command itself stirs up within you a desire to disobey. And so the law has this ironic result of actually stirring up what is wrong. That's his point here. Of It arouses passions to disobey. We were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members bearing fruit to death. We're that broken. It's not an ideal illustration, but I think it serves somewhat. Let's picture two young, adventurous, college-age men. They have found out in the country a long, high railroad bridge that crosses a river valley. And they have kind of this dull sense that that might be rather adventurous to go across that bridge and get a look from up over there that no one else can see because there's no road that goes there. Only people on the train can ever see it. It might actually be kind of fun to do that. They don't really ever get around to it. There's this dull sense that they might also cause some trouble to the conductor if a train came through and maybe some danger to themselves. And they think about it now and then but don't really do anything about it. Then one day they're walking past this same area and there's a sign up that says, what? No trespassing. Now they think about it in a very different way. It might be the attitude of who they think they are telling us we can't go there. We could have gone there before. Nobody ever said we couldn't do this before. Now somebody comes and puts this sign up there. Let's go. Or it might just be that sort of sly, watch me. And the sign suddenly begins to arouse interest in going across the bridge that wasn't there before. Now that illustration breaks down on a lot of levels, but I think it gives us something of a sense of what happens when God says, don't do this, or I want you to do this. The law of God has this kind of effect upon us in matters that are far more serious in the area of morality. We may not respond exactly like these two trespassers respond, but the law stirs up rebellion in us that may have remained more dormant if divine law had not been revealed. And so the result is that we bear fruit to death. And the law itself then has this ironic function of bringing about not less sin, but more sin. But Christ changes that. Verse 6, but now, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
That is, like sin, in chapter 6, the law held us captive, but united to Christ, we've died to the law. Why is this a good thing? Why is this such an important change? Verse 6 continues, so that we will serve in the new way of the Spirit. I prefer the translation in newness of spirit. That connects, do you remember, in chapter 6 and verse 4. That we might walk in newness of life. We will walk now in newness of spirit rather than under uh, the captivity of the law. Not then in the old way of the written code. Now in the newness of the spirit, connecting to 6-4, not in the obsoleteness of letters that we have here in 7 and verse 6, we'll get to that walk of newness in the Spirit in chapter 8, Lord willing. But when you see this phrase at the end of verse 6, that we will no longer live in the old way of the written code, what is that saying? That's a reference to the law. It is not saying... I listen now to whatever the Spirit tells me and I disregard the Bible. I don't need the Bible anymore. I don't need anybody to teach me the Bible. I don't need to know really what the Bible says. I now walk in the Spirit and I can make decisions. Now, I wouldn't disregard the Bible. If it says something, I'm going to listen to it. But really now I live in the Spirit and I do what I feel like the Spirit wants me to do wherever I go. That's not what this means. That's not how to live in the newness of the Spirit. It's not saying I'm free to live however I wish as I take wild guesses of what I believe the Spirit might want me to do right now. Remember 6.17? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you, to which you were committed. You were turned over to the Word. So liberation from the law is not liberation from the Word of God. We are turned over to a life of obedience to the Word of God. But the connection here is it's a life of newness in the Spirit, of a new relationship with the Spirit of God through the death and resurrection of Christ. So that now the spiritual ecosystem in which I live is one in which I respond in relationship to the Holy Spirit, not in mere submission to God's command. Let's put a picture on this. Oh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe this will help. Ed has had problems with alcohol. He's had serious problems with alcohol. It's landed him in jail. It's controlled his life. He's destroyed relationships. But he's doing better. It's been a while since he's taken any alcohol, and he's making progress. And he has, in the mercy of God, a... Christian boss who's helping him. Well, in the process of work, Ed is called upon to make a delivery to a business that's participating on a fairgrounds in a festival where everybody is offering free beer. You can't take a vehicle in there. You've got to walk all the way through the fairgrounds to deliver what our product is here. It's not that, but you're going to see a lot of offers for free alcohol. You can't do it. You've got to think about this as you go through there. Don't get drawn in by the temptation. And the boss, to help Ed out, takes his hand, Ed's hand, and he writes on it, no beer. 
says, every time you're tempted, look at that hand. Ed takes his package, gets to the fairground, starts walking through. No beer. No beer. No beer. And pretty soon the only thing he can think about is beer. It's right there on his hand. And every table that he passes is, I want that, I want that. And, and the craving begins to overwhelm him and overtake him. And it's almost as the writing on his hand, I, he really becomes to almost resent it. Ed's in trouble. Now if he listens, oh, what, what the boss wrote on the hand, even Ed knows that was a good thing to write on my hand, but it's just not helping me here. I know this but I can't do it. Now think of a change in the scenario. All the scenarios are the same, but little different circumstances. Ed's boss is a faithful, godly believer, and he says, Ed, this is a situation. I need you to take this package. I know the struggles that you're having. I am going to go with you. I'm going to walk with you through the fairgrounds. And as they go through, the boss keeps engaging Ed, talking to him, talking good things about his life and what's been going well and how he needs to keep changing, talking to him about the Lord and just having a conversation. And as Ed gets to the place of delivering the package, he says, I wasn't even hardly tempted. What was the difference? In the first, there was a written code that seemed to only remind him of his passions. In the second scenario, there was a relationship. This, Christian, is the relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. You're not going to disregard what the law would call you to do ultimately, but you're going to go at it in relationship with the living Spirit of God who indwells you. And that makes all the difference in the world. He's there. Now sin can close our ears to Him. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can ignore what the Spirit is saying and how He is directing us through the written Word. But in this relationship, we can turn away from it, but we can also turn to it. And that, I think, is what Paul is saying. It is not now the written code alone which will keep showing you your sin. It's now a living, vibrant relationship with God through His Spirit who indwells you as a believer in Christ. So united by faith to Christ, we've died to the law and now serve God in the Spirit, in relationship with the Spirit. God willing, chapter 8, much more to come on that relationship. But secondly, and ideally, we would end here, which would create a mountain for us to take on next week, and so we're going to plow forward into the next section. But the the major break is at verses 6 and 7. But I think we can go on uh, fruitfully here. While the law itself is pure, he says secondly, it serves only to trigger and expose sin, not restricted. Now that point's been made, but he's going to bring that out in further detail, particularly as he looks at that first thought. The law itself is pure. Don't get him wrong. He doesn't want misunderstanding. Verse 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Was the writing on Ed's hand wrong? Was it guiding him the wrong way? By no means. It was helpful. We're not saying that the, that the law is sin. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the problem is never God's revealed word, which he gives to his people as a gift. The problem is the incapacity that we have to obey God's word. So the law teaches us what sin is, and this is good. This is how Paul learned what coveting is, what desire to have something God has not given you. You struggle with that? You do. I do. We want what God has not given us. We covet. He says, I wouldn't have known that, really, not fully, not in this sense, if it hadn't been for the law. But because of our susceptibility to sin, then the law has a negative effect, verse 8. But sin, what is it? Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law can tell you what to do. The law can tell you what not to do. God's commands can tell you it's wrong to gossip, to hate others, to be selfish, to lie. It is wrong to disobey your parents. God's commands can tell us that we should put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. It can tell us that we should love our enemies. It can tell us that we should rejoice at all times. But the law has no ability to empower us to obey what God says. Second part of verse 8 then, 4. Here's the connection. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He's not saying that he was sinless before God's law. He's simply referring to the reality that God's commands awaken sin in him. So in a sense, he's talking like these two young men that saw that sign that says, do not trespass. That sign awakened the desire to break that law in them and to put people at risk in the train and themselves at risk. So the law was right to keep people off of there. It's not a walking bridge. But it aroused in them the desire to do just that. I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said you must not desire what God has not given you, is the point. Ironically, Paul continues, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why does God give His law? That we might live. To point us in the right way. To give us life through His Word. But ironically, he says it brought death. For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. By drawing attention to what was restricted, Paul went across the bridge, so to speak. Now we don't want to overread verses 9 through 11 as saying that Paul was spiritually alive and then died spiritually when he broke the law. That's reading it the wrong way. Some do, but I think that's clearly wrong. And we'll spend more time on this next week, but Paul likely is really identifying here with Adam's sin and Israel's sin after leaving Sinai. It was when God gave the law, don't eat from this tree, that Adam really wanted to. 
It was when God laid down his law in, on Mount Sinai that Israel saw how difficult it would be to keep that law. But in Adam, in the flesh, as unbelievers, our souls are like a pile of rags and sin is like gasoline. That pile of rags there, we douse with more gas every time we sin. And those rags just get saturated with the gasoline sin. God's law is like a torch that's meant to enlighten, to break through the darkness and give us moral light. But that torch getting near the sin of our soul, saturated as it is, ignites and inflames rather than saves. Nothing wrong with the torch, but there's something wrong with us. So let's say it, verse 12. We've got to get this. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy. That is, it is pure. It is just in what it demands of us. It will never ask us to do wrong. But the law was provisional. The law was limited because in the outworking of salvation history it was never sufficient to conquer sin. What the law did do was to prove to God's people that they needed something more than their own efforts, their own obedience in order to please God. And if you are here somewhat self-satisfied today, I'm being a good person, all you need is for someone to talk to you about what God really wants. It won't take too long to realize you don't add up to His standard. And as I always say, if you think you do, after you read what God says, we'll just ask your mother. You don't. We don't. But what the law, as it revealed our sin, was unable to do, we are freed to do in our relationship with the death and resurrection of Christ. Something more is needed. It is to know of that union with Christ. It is to count that union with Christ true. It is to walk in the Spirit, chapter 8. But before we get to chapter 8, the rest of chapter 7 will delve deeply into the battle against sin that rages in this fallen world. We have a lot of work to do, but for today, just a few responses I think are in order to what we have seen through this first half of Romans 7. And the first is awe. May we never, ever lose this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our salvation is historically rooted in the eternal plan of God. Your life, your story passes through Sinai. It passes through Eden and it passes through the cross as well. But it is an eternal plan. The outworking of our salvation is no small undertaking or afterthought. It is an exquisite plan that unfolds through the ages united to Christ by faith, joined eternally to a cosmic story that transforms our very identity. May we never forget it. 
This passage speaks as well of saving grace. I, I may well again speak to someone here as I just spoke to you a moment ago that you think I just have to obey more. I need to get my act together. I need to start doing more righteous things. And then God will be pleased. I know I can do this. I mess up, but I'm going to try harder. If you think that trying harder, establishing new disciplines, becoming a better person as you improve yourself is the way to please God, you have mercifully been brought into a room today where you're being told that's wrong. That's not what God says. That's not what He's revealed in His Word. More in chapter 7, but the only response to God's holiness, the only response to the demands of His will is to come on our knees and say, I can't. I don't. I need you. Your salvation, if you're thinking, I'm going to improve, I'm going to develop disciplines, I'm going to start doing right, if that's where your thinking is, you've got to be delivered from that thinking because it's killing you. But Christ will save you from the sin that you can't save yourself from. What we need to come to is the place where we recognize our wretchedness. I am in desperate need of rescue. Saving grace. We see here as well also obviously a very important word on sanctifying grace. And a few thoughts on that. How foolish for a Christian to learn of liberation from the law and to respond by establishing his own law as a guide to holiness. We're all tempted to it sometimes. Now let me say, disciplines in the Christian life are vital. I'm not dismissing that. But rule-making, my own rule-making, as a means of sanctification is a fool's errand that yields nothing but disappointing returns. We see this particularly in the second generation of Christians who are under such systems. The law is gone, and we might even rejoice and say we are freed from the law, but then we create our own. And we do basically the same thing our own ritualistic rules of law-keeping, it's such a sad return in the second generation. There are the compliant children who become obsessed with rule-keeping, who harbor untouched areas that hide under what might be called acceptable sins and become very self-righteous people. Or the second is the rebel. I will break every rule of the house, every rule of the church, every rule of my parents that I can break just to show I can do it. And obviously a lot of room in between those two, but the results are constantly discouraging. When we erect our own systems of our own rules to please God on our own terms in the flesh, in our own strength, the results are horrifying. That's stated. Let me go also to say, in this direction, however, living in the newness of the Spirit does not produce less holiness. It produces more. The evidence that I'm walking in the Spirit 
not bound to the law in the wrong sense, is not a freewheeling way of life that looks pretty much like the world with a sprinkling of Bible verses here and there. That's not freedom in the Spirit. That's not newness of life in the Spirit of God. There's no simplistic way to fight sin in this fallen world. We certainly need to be encouraged and trained to do so rightly, but it's going to be a long-term battle. Having said that, when we fight it by walking in the Spirit, the evidence is that our speech changes. Our attitudes are transformed. It shows itself in the control of our desires, in our love for enemies, in our love for other believers, in our love for God. It shows itself, as 6.17 put it, that we have been committed, we've been turned over to the standard of teaching that is now the life of the believer in Christ. It's not less Bible, it's more Bible. But it's not law approach. It's spirit approach. It's a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God and in the warmth of that relationship, His influence continues to change how I talk and think and act, what I want, where I go, the goals of my life. It's not less holiness as I become a freewheeling, listen to the Spirit and do whatever I want kind of Christian. It's deep holiness that transforms us within by the presence of the Spirit of God. I hope, I hope you're with me in that creates some anticipation. That creates a desire to fight sin and to respond to the holiness that God calls us to in relationship with the Spirit. I hope that it creates an anticipation of learning to walk in the Spirit as we journey together as an assembly, as individual Christians walking with the Lord. By God's grace, as He takes us through these coming chapters, we can continue to grow in that fight against sin. Christian, if you're discouraged there today, we're all discouraged with the fight against sin. I'm definitely discouraged right now. It's a slog. It's an ugly world. I'm an ugly person standing on my own. So don't despair there. But please, don't take your hand and write some saying on it and think that's going to send you through life. Come to know the Spirit of God and He will change you little by little over time as we obey the Word through the Spirit and walk in relationship with Him. We'll go there together by the grace of God and learn and grow in our walk through these pages and in our walk together as the body of Christ. Be encouraged. And if you are on your own righteousness Come to Christ's righteousness today. We call you there. We encourage you to come. To give up all that you're holding on to and to trust Jesus alone as your saving grace. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we we pause here in prayer, not ritualistically, but because this word will go nowhere apart from your power 
and you're working to take this word and plant it deep within us. As we've sung in prayer, we now cry out to you, do the work of sanctification in our lives that you desire to do. Bring to saving faith in Christ those separated from Him by Your mercy, according to Your sovereign purposes. But Lord, work out within each of us the holiness of life that You desire. And may we keep learning of our history and how it points us there and the relationship that we have with You. Aid us to this end, we pray, through Christ.